This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. It's Zoomer Radio's Theater of the Mind with Frank Proctor. Open your mind as we fill your head with amazing thrills, chills, <laughs> and laughs. Theater of the Mind, the best love programs from radio's golden age, only on Zoomer Radio. Now, here is your master storyteller, Frank Proctor. Thank you, and welcome to the show as we begin the month of June. Well, tonight we feature the talents of Orson Welles in The Lives of Harry Lyme, produced in the United Kingdom during the 1951-52 season. Orson Welles reprises his role of Harry Lyme from the celebrated 1949 film The Third Man. The Adventures of Harry Lyme is one of the most successful series created by prolific British radio producer Harry Allen Towers and his company Towers of London. I love that name. The episode we hear tonight... Blackmail is a nasty word. Presenting Orson Welles as the third man. of Harry Lyme, the fabulous stories of the immortal character, originally created in the story The Third Man, with zither music by Anton Karras. Well, I've messed around in a lot of messy things. You know me, I'm certainly no angel. But I never had anything to do with murder, or dope, or blackmail. Except just once. With blackmail, that is. Not my fault, either, as I think you'll agree. But all the same, I'm sorry to have ever come within breathing distance of that caper, because as several people during the course of this little story had occasion to point out, blackmail is a nasty word. That's the title of the tale. Stick around and see if you don't agree. Little sailing boat with an auxiliary typical pleasure craft of those waters to use as a cover. 
This was in September, and I'd just come into port that afternoon. A few of us had been having dinner in the town. I was on my way back to the boat alone. It was late, about four in the morning, cold, rather foggy. Suddenly, looming ahead of me in the mist and lurching drunkenly, I saw the figure of a man. A big fellow he was. I thought I'd stay out of his way. Marseille's a tough town, one of the toughest in the world. It's a good place not to have any trouble in, so... So I tried to keep clear of the drunk, but before I could get out of the way, he caught sight of me, uttered a strange, muffled sort of cry, and suddenly threw himself forward. I braced myself for a fight, but before I knew it, he was down on his knees in front of me, groaning. Then all at once I realized he wasn't drunk at all, that all that wet on his chest was blood. I never found out who did it, even after I took him out of my yacht. Tried to do what I could for him. Never told me who it was that had stabbed him. The knife had gone in just over his heart, and by dawn it was pretty clear that he wasn't going to live through the day. He seemed to realize it, too. They got me. And it doesn't matter why me. Maybe they were right. They got me, and now very soon I'm going to die. What is your name? Lime. Harry Lime. I've heard of you. You've quite a reputation, Monsieur Lime. I, I call you Harry. Okay. I am Draco. Yes, I see from your face that you have heard of me, too. You you call me Marcel. Okay, Marcel. That way I spend my last hour, so... among friends. Marcel Braco. A real Marseillaise, born quite a while ago anyway, died September 12, 1947. Profession, crook. All kinds of crook. Some of the dirtiest kinds I knew there. Among other things, I'd heard that Bracco was the chief of the Amazons. It was a gang of girls. Crooks, all of them. He was the... No, the big ugly man in my berth wasn't one of the nice people. And you mustn't think because I'm telling you this story that I have anything to say in his favor. But he was a guy. See what I mean? He was somebody. And he was dying. Steady, old man. Easy does it. I'm with you. I haven't got time to make a wheel. I, I know that sounds like a joke, but I'm simply sorry. I'd like to leave you something to show my gratitude. Something to remember me by. That's okay, old man. No. All I can give you is this. And it's worth something, Harry. It's worth quite a lot. If I give you a name. A name, Harry. Do not think I am joking. This, this name is just as good as money or jewels. Remember it. The name it is Maurice Chivolet. Did you hear that, Harry? Chivolet. Maurice Chivolet. Well, who is he? Oh, he's many things, Harry. He's a very many different sorts of men. You must remind him of this. It would be like money to you. Where do I find him? In the Chamber of Deputies of the National Assembly of France. What do I say to him? Say... I'm dying, Harry. Hold my hand. I am, old man. I'm holding I haven't time to tell you. You must have Julien. Julien? Yes, Julien Moreau. Moreau? Moreau. But he was dead. I pulled the sheet up over his big, ugly face and went out of the cabin and locked the door. Mm-hmm. 
Three months later in Paris, in a little nightclub in Montparnasse, I ran into Julian Moreau. Julian was a newspaper man, and in his way, Julian was quite a guy, too. Not a crook, just a newspaper man and a good one. I'd struck up an acquaintance with him, and after a couple of weeks, it had brightened into something resembling friendship. So tonight, I thought the time had come when I could afford to approach him on the subject of my legacy. A precious name. Julian. Yes, Harry? I want to ask you a question. Go ahead. I'm going to mention a name. Well? If it means anything, do you let me know? Don't be so mysterious, Harry. What's the name? Givalet. Maurice Givalet. Why do you ask? Why don't you answer? Excuse me, Harry. I want you to tell me why you mentioned that name. You won't tell me anything about him unless I do? I'm afraid not. Well, was a guy down in Marseille told me that name. Said it was worth money. Worth money? Yes. That's what he told me. He was dying at the time. That man in Marseille, he must have been a criminal. Well, don't go all prim and moral on me, Julian. Yes, as a matter of fact, he was something along those lines. What of it? I'm not going moral on you, Eric. I'm nothing very special myself. But when you say to me that the name Maurice Givlet is worth money, <laughs> well... Or what? There's a nasty world for that, Harry. A nasty world for that kind of money. What do you mean? Chantage. I don't get that. That's French, Harry. French for blackmail. A little later, though, Julian loosened up a little. After a few more drinks. Harry? Yes? That criminal in Marseille you were talking about. Well, you brought him up, Julian. I was asking about a certain Monsieur Givalet. I know. Harry, was the criminal's name Bracon? Marcel Bracon? Yeah, but how do you happen to know him? You're not in the rackets. You're a newspaper man. Marcel was with us for a while in the resistance. He was a brave man, and we got to be friends. Then later, we quarreled. That was after the war. He came to me here in Paris, wanted information about this Givlet. I gave it to him. Givlet is an important man in the government. And through the paper, I arranged an interview between him and Marcel. But I told you, Harry, blackmail something I can't forgive. And Marcel was blackmailing this Givlet? Yes. Not for money, but for protection. Police protection. Marcel, as you probably know, had that gang they call the Amazons. But uh, what was he blackmailing Givlet about? What, what did he have on him? Plenty. And you know what it was? Certainly, Marcel told me. Exactly what was Givlet's past? Ah, Harry. That's Mr. Givlet's secret. <laughs> and yours, old man. It's yours, too. Hmm? Yes, Harry, as you say. It's mine, too. Oh. Must be something pretty bad. Bad enough for a man who's trying to make something decent of himself. For... I don't think I like Mr. Givlet. I hate him. But as long as he behaves himself, I won't denounce him. As long as he behaves himself. So that's your price, is it? <laughs> don't you see, old man? In a way, you're a blackmailer yourself. Then, some months later, in the lobby of the Georges Sank in Paris... Calling Mr. Lime, Monsieur Harry Lime, yes. Monsieur Lime. Yes, boy. Monsieur Lime. Yes, what is it, a phone call? There is a lady to see 
see you, Monsieur Lyme. She's waiting in the lobby. A lady, young or old? Young, Monsieur Lyme, and very pretty. Well, either way, old man. What are we waiting for? Hello. You are Harry Lyme? Insist on the original, honey. Accept no substitutes. This is it. I don't understand. I'm Harry Lyme. That's what I'm trying to tell you. Who are you? We haven't got around to that yet. You have not given me a chance to tell you. True enough. My name is Muller. Heidi Muller. Glad to know you, Heidi. Shall we go into the bar and have a drink? It's a little early for dinner, but... This is serious, Mr. Lyme. I've come to see you on business. I was afraid of that. Well, go ahead. I've been told about you, Mr. Lyme. Idle gossip, honey. You know how people talk. I'm a straight, upright, clean-living, law-abiding citizen. Uh, What is it you had in mind? Well, I, I... Which particular law did you want me to break for you? I want a passport. Passport? Oh, that's easy. We can arrange that for you in a couple of days. The man here in Paris does very good work, but the best phony passports come from Amsterdam, if you're willing to wait. It is not as simple as that. Oh? I want a passport for my father. Well, just give me his name and the other particulars and a photograph. By the way, what kind of passport do you want? American, British, Panamanian? Lord, my father is not here. He's in Romania. Romania? Yes. On the other side of the Iron Curtain. You want me to get a passport to him in Romania? That's right. That's practically impossible. Uh, Mr. Well, now, now, mind you, when I say practically, uh, that's what I mean. It's practically. For Harry Lyme, nothing is strictly impossible, just expensive. Uh, you get what I mean? Mm, no, I did not. Well, how much dough can you spend? Money? Yes. If you want to get a passport to your father in Romania... I'm not going to pay anything, Mr. Lyme. What? You're going to do this for me as a gift. You've come to the wrong man, my dear. I'm sorry, I'd like to help, but I never break the law except on a strictly commercial basis. Besides an operation Mr. like Lyme, this... Mr. Is... Lyme, this is very embarrassing. It certainly is, dear. But I, I told you, you were going to do this for me without charging me money. And you are, Mr. Lyme. Shall I tell you why? Yes, it'd be very interesting to hear. I believe you are in trouble now with the French police, Mr. Honey, I'm always in trouble with the French police. Why? Yesterday they sent for me and asked me to identify you. Asked you to identify me? Why? What's the caper? I do not know. It is something to do with counterfeit money. Oh, yes, that casino business. That happened in August in Cannes. They never got me on it. The money was passed, all right. They know that, but they can't pin it on me. I was there on the casino, Mr. Lamb. The police discovered that I was next in line at the cashier's. When they find that out, they came to me. They want me to be a witness against you. They want me to swear that I saw you passing that counterfeit money. I see. And uh, what did you tell them? First, I asked them questions about you. That's how I found out that you are, well, who you are. I see. Look, Heidi, tell me the truth. Did you really see me pass that money? No. As a matter of fact, I didn't, but... Unless you helped me with my father, Mr. Lamb, I'd say that I did. And then, of course, you'd go to jail. Hmm. Well? That reminds me of something a friend of mine was saying last night. The French have a nasty word for what you're up to, young lady. I can't remember what it is now. Blackmail's a bad word in any language. In a moment, Orson Welles returns 
as Harry Lyme, the third man. is quite a character and a great authority on passports, frontiers, international laws in general, and how to break them in particular. Hello? This is Harry Lyme speaking. Harry Lyme, I want to speak to Mama. Trouble. I need help. Not trouble. Sort of. Come up. I see you right away. An hour later, I'd filled Mama in on the whole story and was waiting for advice. Well, Ari, it's a tricky business. I don't need to tell you. The phony passport's easy. But uh, finding this man Muller in Romania and... And getting him back through the Iron Curtain, it's no joke. Look, Mom, I didn't come here to listen to how difficult it is. I want some help. Well, there are two ways. Yeah? The first way, you go to remain yourself. That's the way I don't like. I don't blame you. A man can get killed around there. The other way is uh, through diplomatic channels. Well, the way you say it, it sounds easy, Mama, but do you know any ambassadors? No. I don't know any ambassadors, neither do you. All you need is somebody high up in the government here in France. If you could just find a weak place somewhere. A weak place where you could uh, put some pressure. You mean blackmail? I don't like the word, Harry. No. I mean pressure. Just find the soft place where you can push. Hmm? Hey, where are you going? Sit down, I'm making a nice glass of tea. Thanks, Mama, but I haven't got time. I've got to find myself one of those soft places. And then, Mama, I've got to start pushing. Pushing quick or else. Or else? It's that same old word, Mama. I don't like it any more than you do. Blackmail? Pressure, Mama, pressure. So long. Monsieur Lyme? Yes? Monsieur Givelet will see you now. Come this way, please. Thank you. Monsieur Lyme? Oh, yes. Come in, please. What can I do for you? Well, I'll get right down to the point, Givelet. I know you're a busy man as well as an important one. Well? I have a favor to ask. Ah? There's a man in Romania. He's stateless. Nansen passport before the war. His daughter's here in France. She wants to get him out. Are you serious, Monsieur? Uh, Lyme. Lyme. Such a thing as you are asking. Why, it's practically impossible. 
And I will be frank with you. I don't even know who you are. Lime, Harry Lime. I told you that. Well, you see, even on the highest ministerial level... It would be, as you say, practically impossible. I like that word, practically, Mr. Givlet. It gives me a little hope. Yes, but... I know. Don't bother to say it again. You don't know me from Adam, Monsieur Givlet, but there you see I have the advantage. I know you from Adam, Monsieur Givlet. I even know you from Monsieur Givlet. I don't understand. I've been in touch with a friend of yours. What friend of mine? A man called Brocco. What? Marcel Brocco. The name seems to mean a good deal to you. He said it would. Brocco is dead. But not Brocco's secret, not your secret, old man. He gave it to me before he died. Now then, when can I expect some action on my client, Miller? Your client? The man who needs a passport. Remember the case you said was practically impossible? Leave the particulars with my secretary. You will hear from me before the end of the week. Thanks, old man. I appreciate this. I really do. And when do I hear from you? Again, I mean, uh, blackmailers always come back. That's a nasty word, old man. Don't use it again. and You won't see me. Well, it worked. Whatever it was, it worked. I was holding a secret over a man's head... And I didn't even know the secret. Yes, whatever I was threatening the politician Givalet with seemed to be a threat strong enough because by the end of next week, Heidi's father was on his way through the Iron Curtain. She said I was wonderful, Heidi did. Asked how she could ever thank me. I told her that thanks didn't come into it. I'm not your benefactor, honey, remember? I told her, I'm your victim. <laughs> About four months later, Julian wrote me from New York. This is Julian Moreau, my newspaper man. Dear Harry, he wrote, now that it's all over, I think you have a right to know the truth. The truth about Givalet, I mean. I'm reading to you now from Julian's letter. Givalet was born in a suburb of Paris. His political life began when he joined a group wearing black boots and brown shirts of a violently anti-democratic character. This was all during the 30s. Then, during World War II, came his big chance. You will see that this Givalet, while essentially a little man, is clever. He secures for himself very early in the German occupation a false identity card, and it is under the false name of Givret that he is a collaborationist, a Nazi stooge, and a black marketeer. His real name is therefore a good name. It is the false one which is bad. Now it's the beginning of 44. Convinced that the Nazis are near the end, he rushes forward to the fighting French and under his real name joins their invasion corps. Under his true identity, he gives them some assistance. And at the end of the war, the power of the resistance becomes overwhelming and their investigations far-reaching. So Givalet drops the false identity of Givray forever. Now notice, please, that his original name is above reproach since it was under the false one that he acted for the Nazis. Now, there's need for men like himself, modest, self-effacing, industrious. And so it comes to pass that the little fascist street fighter, the black marketeer, the collaborationist who betrayed scores of his countrymen to the Germans, is triumphantly elected to the parliament as representative of one of the great historical parties of France. Well, now, my friend, we come to the Amazons. I gave them this title in the newspapers myself just before the war. Theoretically, the racket was broken up, but in fact, it was still flourishing in Paris until the very recent death of a certain Marcel Bracco. This gang worked in pairs late at night. Gangs of girls. 
striking up casual acquaintances with visiting provincial gentlemen of a certain age and steering them to various nightclubs, finally to a cheap bar where the respectable old gentleman was invariably rolled, as you say, in America. In other words, everything was taken from him, and if possible, afterwards, he was blackmailed. Now, some such poor old fellow was being beaten up in a bar by Bracco and the others who worked in his gang when Givalet, driving home from an all-night session at the National Assembly, heard the noise. He was waiting for a traffic light to change, and seeing no police on the street, he went into the little bar to investigate. Now, Mark, this was a genuinely kindly act, the act of a self-respecting French citizen. And you see what it got him. Of course, the gangsters turned on him and beat him senseless. Going through his wallet, they came on his old identity card, which he'd kept for some reason or another, concealed behind a photograph of his mother. It was the card of Givray, the Nazi stooge. Thus, his secret fell into the hands of Bracco, who used it not to extort money, but for police protection for his gang. Very recently, as you may have read in my column, Monsieur Givalet was being considered for an important new post in the ministry. And then you, my dear Harry, came to him with your threats. Threats of exposing something the very nature of which, as it happened, you didn't even understand. Now, Givalet had begun to breathe again, you see, and to hope after Bracco had died. But your visit was too much for him. The French government had put a price on the head of Givray, the Nazi stooge. Givalet, the politician, didn't realize that his secret was safe. Perhaps he was right. A secret like that is never safe. And so it was that after some weeks of waiting for you to return, and of course you never did, his nerve finally cracked. And the very day on which he was to be confirmed in his new post, his housekeeper coming in with a morning coffee, found him dead. He was seated before his desk where he had shot himself, seated before a blank piece of paper. He had not even written a note of farewell. I suppose at the end he found it difficult to decide who he could write to, what he would say, and above all, what name he would sign. Harry Lyme returns in just a moment. I know near the markets where they make a wonderful fish soup. And who should I see having lunch there but Heidi? Heidi and an old gentleman I was sure must be her father. It was. She introduced him and I sat down with him for a drink. So finally I get to meet the wonderful Harry Lime. <laughs> this is really a pleasure. Well, I'm glad you're with us here, Miller, on the sunny side of that iron curtain. Thanks to you, Mr. Lime. Oh, no, really. But yes, <laughs> my daughter has told me everything. Everything, Heidi? Did you tell your father everything? Well, Mr. Lime, I told him all the wonderful help... But did you tell him how you managed to persuade me to do it? Not exactly. I, uh, I... Not exactly. 
What's this? Secrets? Why, Heidi, you're blushing. Heidi, I'll make a deal with you. A deal? I won't tell your father what you did if you let me take you both to lunch. <laughs> but that's blackmail. It's a nasty word, Mr. Miller. Let's not use it again. It'll spoil our soup. <laughs> Stay tuned for Jack Benny next on Theater of the Mind. You're listening to Theater of the Mind on Zoomer Radio, AM 740 at 96.7 FM in downtown Toronto. All set for a visit with Jack Benny and the gang? Okay, Jack has been named an admiral of the Navy. Only thing is, it's the Navy of Nebraska. Starring Jack Benny with Barry Livingston, Phil Harris, Rochester, Larry Stevens, and yours truly, Don Wilson. Hello, Mr. Benny's residence. Star of stage, screen, radio, and eggs died or laid as the occasion demands. <laughs> Rochester, this is Miss Livingston. I'd like to speak to Mr. Benny, please. Oh, I'm sorry, Miss Livingston. I, I wouldn't want to disturb the Admiral now. <laughs> Rochester, what are you talking about? Haven't you heard? Mr. Benny's been made an Admiral. Jack Benny, an Admiral? Are you surprised? Surprised? Rochester, I knew we were winning, but this is ridiculous. <laughs> But I saw it in the paper He got the commission from Governor Griswold of Nebraska Gee And Mr. Benny is now a full-fledged admiral in the Nebraska Navy In the Nebraska... Oh, I get it He's an imaginary admiral in an imaginary navy Yeah, but he's taking it seriously He made me sew gold stripes on his blue serge suit (laughs) Oh, for heaven's sake Rochester, how many stripes did he make you sew on? I don't know, but you could cut the sleeves off at the elbow and he'd still be a full admiral. (laughs) (laughs) Goodbye. Goodbye.
like Mr. Benny and Admiral, he's been upstairs working out fleet maneuvers. <laughs> I'd better get him away from that bathtub before he messes up the whole room. <laughs> oh, Mr. Benny. Say, boss. Oh, Admiral. What? <laughs> Oh, uh, oh, it's you, Rochester. Uh, glad to have you aboard. Uh, batten down the hatch and sit down. Uh, uh, what do you want? Your breakfast is getting cold down on the lower deck. <laughs> well, I can't, uh, I can't leave now. I'm about to engage the enemy. Now watch. The enemy fleet is over here. Boss, don't splash water on that bath mat. Quiet. Now I swing my carriers around like this and bring my destroyers over to this side and encircle them. There you are, Rochester. Now, if you were the enemy and I had you surrounded like that, what would you do? I'd pull out the plug and ground every ship you got. Don't be silly. Being an admiral in the Nebraska Navy is serious business. Aye, aye, sir. And anyway, I'm proud of my appointment. In fact, I'm sorry I didn't stay with her when I was in the service 24 years ago. Yes, sir. Military life is a life for me. And those promotions. Now, Rochester, help me take my fleet out of the bathtub and now, then. Oh, so say, boss, I meant to tell you, Miss Livingston called. Oh, yes, yes. I better get ready. Boss, if you're going out, don't you think you ought to take off those medals? Huh? huh? Or, or, or wear half of them on your right side, you're listening to Port. Oh, yes, yes. Say, I just happened to think of something. I promised to take my girl, Gladys Dabisco, too. I'll pick her up on the way to Miss Livingston. I hope Gladys and Mary are ready when I pick them up. Gladys Zabisco. I've been going with her now for nine years. Oh, hello there, children. Hello, mister. Hello. You know who I am, don't you, children? I'm Jack Denny. Yes, we know. You tell us every time you see us. <laughs> oh. oh, yes, yes. You want to know something? Last night, our mother and father were talking about you. Really? Yeah, they thought we were asleep. <laughs> So long, children. Bye, Bye Mr. Mr. Benny. Who's this? What? He looks a lot older than 36, doesn't he? <laughs> uh, did you say something, Sonny? No, no. Goodbye. Goodbye. See, they're cute, kid. But that little boy looks a lot older than seven. <laughs> Well, hello, Don. Where are you going? Uh, I'm on my way down to the express office, Jack, to pick up a set of encyclopedias. A set of encyclopedias? Yeah, and I've just got to tell you, Jack, 
I sent in two questions to a quiz program, and boy, did I stump those experts. Well, so long, Don. So long, Jack. See, I like Don Wilson and his sly commercials. The way he tricks me into keeping my job. Really. <laughs> Phew. I better sing slower. I can't walk that fast. <laughs> oh, darn it. I meant to call Larry Stevens before I left the house and find out what he was going to sing on the program this evening. When I talked to Phil, he told me about the arrangement. I remember he said they were, they were going to use a harp. And four violins. I remember he said that, too. See, that's going to be kind of nice. With the harp in the background and the violins playing the soft melody. Yep. Yep, it ought to be a beautiful number. Someone was always in my dreams That someone was always you I never thought we'd meet someday, but now that my dream came true, I just want the right to love you all of my life, just the right to take care of you. I bet that'll be beautiful, that song. Oh, Mr. Benny. Huh? Oh, oh, it's you, Mr. Kern. <laughs> How's the newspaper, Benny? Oh, fine, fine. Funny, I always seem to run into you on the street. Well, I was just going over to your house to thank you for those stories you gave me. Oh, you mean how I found Mary Livingston? Mm-hmm, and how you found Rochester. Well, I'm glad you liked them. You know, those first two articles were very successful. And now my editor is interested in knowing how you found Phil Harris. Phil Harris? That's right. Well, well, okay. 
Uh, walk along with me, Mr. Kearns, and I'll give you the whole story. All right. You see, it was ten years ago that I first met Phil Harris. I remember the day well because it was Mary's birthday and I wanted to show her a nice time. So I got all dressed up and went over to her house and let her make dinner for me. <laughs> and the meal was delicious. I remember we had thick sirloin steaks, smothered in onions, and stripped with bacon. Yes, sir. That was ten years ago. Gosh, Mary, this is a terrific meal. Well, thank you, Jack. See, the steak is so tender and so easy to cut. Gee, it just melts in your mouth. Jack, put on your glasses. You're eating the butter. <laughs> well, anyway, Mary, it was sweet of you to invite me over to your apartment for dinner. And wait till you see the bottle of champagne I brought you for a birthday present. You know, you've heard of those famous imported champagnes like Vintage Premier and Chateau Calais. Yes. Well, this is a new brand. Saban Oop. <laughs> you know, uh, Mary, I was just thinking. Here it is, 1935. And it's been three years since I put you on my radio program. It's been over three years. Yep. Say, Mary, what would you do if I gave you a little raise? I'd quit my job at the May Company. <laughs> Don't worry, Mary. You just stick with me. In another two or three years, you won't have to work at the May Company. Except maybe Saturdays. Huh? <laughs> the day will come. Well, let's not talk about that, Jack. The evening is young and it's my birthday, so let's do something. Well, uh, I was going to suggest something. What? Well, first, let's go over and sit on the sofa. Uh-huh. And we'll snuggle up close to each other. Uh-huh. Then we'll turn the lights down low. Uh-huh. Then we'll tell ghost stories. <laughs> How about it? Well, Mama warned me about everything but this. <laughs> what? Jack. Why don't we go out somewhere? Let's go to the Coconut Grove. Well, maybe... Hey, wait a minute, Mary. I've got an idea. There's a nightclub way downtown on North Figueroa Street, and there's a new band playing there. Let's see, what's the name of that band again? Oh, yes. Phil Harris and his syncopated serenaders from the Solid South. <laughs> Phil Harris? I've never heard of him. Well, he's just coming up, and I'd like to go hear him, Mary, because you know I need a new orchestra for my program. All right, let's go. Okay, now let's see. Where's that nightclub now? Oh, yes, on Figueroa, about six miles east of the La Brea Tar Pit. <laughs> Come on, Mary. Here it is, Mary. This is the place. Holy smoke. What a nightclub. This is an awful joint. Well, Mary, you can't tell anything about it from the outside. Yeah, but look at the name of it. The Ruiz Club. So what? Ruiz fell backwards as sewer. <laughs> All right. What's the difference? And look, Jack. You have to go down these stairs. Yeah. Okay, let's go down. Watch your step, Mary. <laughs> Oh, 
rest. If I go down any farther, I'll get the bends. <laughs> Bottom, Jack. Here's the door. Oh, yes. Well, that guy Harris knows all the new tunes, doesn't he? Yeah, but how can people dance on that bare ground? They probably sprinkle water on it to make it slippery. And it helps keep the dust on, too, you know. Let's find a table. Uh, maybe that man will get us one. Oh, yes. Uh, pardon me, are you a waiter? Oh, what do you think I am with this napkin over my arm? A clothesline? <laughs> oh, I'm sorry, but you're dressed too nice to be working in a joint like this. You know? Oh, you mean these striped pants and this Prince Albert coat? Well, you see, I wear these clothes on my other job. Other job? Yes, I'm an undertaker's assistant. <laughs> oh. It was my idea to put the candles on the table. <laughs> hmm. And now would you like me to find a table and lay you out? <laughs> I mean, seat you? Yes, yes, please. Come on, Mary. Ah, here we are. Now, uh, what would you like to eat? Uh, nothing, thanks. We just came in to hear the band. Well, you might as well order something. There's a minimum charge of 35 cents. <laughs> 35 cents? Well, I'll have a chicken sandwich and a combination salad. And I'll have a steak sandwich and French fried potatoes. Anything to drink? No. You might as well. You've got 15 cents to go. Oh, <laughs> uh, well, bring us coffee. Imagine that waiter, an undertaker's assistant. Jack, look, the show's about to start. Good, I'm anxious to hear this guy, Phil Harris. Hiya, folks, and a good, good evening to each and every one of you. <clears throat> now, <laughs> welcome to our little club. This is your orchestra leader and master of the ceremonies, the one and only Phil Harris. Are you glad to see me? Sir, thank you, thank you, and we have a very lovely crowd here tonight. Hey, Mary, he's got a nice personality. We'll see. And speaking of crowd folks, a funny thing happened to me on the way to the club tonight. The panhandler stopped me and said, pardon me, mister, can you let me have $1,000.05 for a cup of coffee? So I said to him, I said, look, coffee only costs a nickel. What do you do? What do you want a thousand bucks for? So he says to me... It's going to kill you, folks. <laughs> he says to me, well, I got to pay my income tax, don't I? <laughs> no, lady, don't explain it to him. If he don't get it, just let him suffer. Let him lay it. Don't wake him up. <laughs> hey, Mary. Mary, did you get it? I got it all over me. <laughs> Quiet. This guy's good. He's and, good. And uh, here's another one, folks. Uh, just a limb ya. Embalm ya. Did somebody call for me? <laughs> quiet, quiet. Get this, folks. A guy walked up to me today and said, Hey, Harris, uh, where'd you get the black eye? So I told him it was a birthmark. And he said, a birthmark? And I said, yeah, I got it in the wrong birth. <laughs> oh, yes, folks, it's just natural with me. Just natural. <laughs> Yes, that's yes, yes. That's not natural. Now we're rolling all new stuff here. All hey, Mary. Hey, Mary. Mary, this guy is terrific. 
No, really, he'd be great on the radio. He's got something new, something different. Oh, you say that every time you see a man with hair. <laughs> oh, you just don't know class. Now, folks, for the high spot of the show, I'm going to sing a song I wrote myself entitled That's What I Like About the Sound. Hey, I bet this will be good. You know that, man? Come with me to Alabama. Let's go see my dear old mammy. She's frying eggs and brawling heavy. That's what I like about the South. Hey, man, now there you can make no mistake. Where those nerves are never shaky. Off the taste to lay a cakey. That's what I like about the South. Oh, I gotta hire She's got guy. baked ribs and candied yams. Those sugar cured Virginia hams. Way down south in Alabama. And that's what I like about the South. Hot corn, bread, and black eyed peas. You can eat as much as you please. Hey, look snap snaps his fingers. Season. That's what I like about the South. Ah, don't take one. Have two there. Dark brown and chocolate, too. Suits me, they must suit you, because that's what I like about the South. Thank you. Thank you. Yes, sir. Never alone in the club. Well, folks, that concludes our first floor show, but don't go away. There'll be another sensational show in five minutes. <laughs> Mary? Mary, I don't care what you say. That guy Harris would be great on my program. I want to get him over here. Hey, waiter, waiter. Yeah? Will you please bring the, um... <laughs> Well, uh, will you please bring the orchestra leader over to my table? I'm sorry. He doesn't come with the 35 cent dinner. <laughs> Never mind the wisecracks. Bring him over here. All right, all right. I don't know, Mary. This guy, Harris, has a great personality. Cigarettes, cigarettes, all so cupid dolls, gardenias, and razor blades. <laughs> Imagine razor blades. Oh, miss, give me a pack of cigarettes, please. Yes, sir. What kind? Oh, by the way, miss, what's that you've got on your tray there, tied up in pink ribbon? That's a lock of Mr. Harris's hair, 20 cents. <laughs> Well, I don't want it. You better take it. This is the last one left, and we don't shear them again till the first of the month. Now, no, thanks just the same. Hey, Mary, she's kind of cute. Oh, right? you fall for it. Wait a minute, wait a minute. Here comes Phil Harris. Now, Mary, I want to make an impression on him, and I want you to help me sign him for my show. Tell him what a good boss I am and how swell it is to work on the radio. And above, above all, what a wonderful guy I am personally, you know? <laughs> Oh, but Jack... I... Here he comes. Huh? Hey, uh, I understand one of you characters want to see me. <laughs> Why, yes. Uh, yes, sit down. This is Miss Livingston. Hiya, sweets. Mm. And uh, my name is Jack Benny. Look, bud, I ain't got much time. What did you want to see me about? Well, I wanted to talk to you about a job. Job? Yeah. Well, look, fella, I know things are tough, but uh, I can't use you. I, I, don't... <laughs> I don't want no new help, kid. No, no, I don't mean that. You see, I have a radio program, and I'd like you and your band to be on my show. Well... I don't know. You see, I've oh, been Oh, but here. he's a wonderful man to work for. He's the nicest boss I ever had. He's just a ginger, peachy boss. So pleasant, so gentle. Mary, you're overdoing it. And stop, stop licking my hand. <laughs> now, Mr. Harris. Uh, just call me Curly. Oh. Till the first of the month. <laughs> oh. Oh, yes, the cigarette girl told me. Now, Mr. Harris, radio is a different type of work. Uh, you read music, of course. Huh? <laughs> Music, notes, arrangement. What's that on your music rack? Termites, the joint's lousy with them. <laughs> oh, Harris, how could you be so young and bright when it's so dark down here? 
<laughs> See, Mary, this guy is terrific. Oh, look, I'm only kidding. I've been studying music since I was a baby. Why, when I was six years old, my parents used to take me to the concerts at Carnegie Hall. A six-year-old kid interested in Carnegie Hall? Well, they told me it was a burlesque show. <laughs> a burlesque show? Yeah, how I used to whistle when they took the cover off of the bass fiddle. <laughs> Mary, this guy's got a terrific sense of humor. He'll probably be able to write my gags for me. I'll settle if he can just write. <laughs> now, look, Harris, I want you on my program. So if you'll meet me Sunday morning, we'll... Uh... Uh, wait, excuse me a minute. The second floor show's about to start, and I've got to introduce the singer. Oh, I'll wait till you're through. You know, Mary, I think this fellow's... Hey, a... Jack, look who's going to sing, the cigarette girl. Oh, yes. Hey, she's cute. And now, folks, I want to introduce our singer, the sweetest little lady this side of Pismo Beach, Miss Trixie Laverne, who will sing a Mahelen Polly Baby. <laughs> well. Come to me, my Mahelen Polly Baby. Cuddle up and don't be blue. All your fears are. with you Every cloud must have a silver I can't you hear me calling when the rain at Emma falling <laughs> Why every day the sun is shining Why should I be home a pine? Or else I will be a melancholy Yes, I will be a melancholy Or else I will be melancholy Gosh, Mary, I'm a sucker for sentimental songs. <laughs> hey, Harris! Harris, come here a minute. Yeah? Hey, that girl singer you've got isn't bad. That Trixie Laverne. Well, look, that's just her stage name. Her real name is Gladys Nabisco. <laughs> Gladys Nabisco, eh? Say, that's a pretty name, too. You know, I kind of like that, babe. Oh, come on, Jack. Let's get out of here. Why, Mary, you're jealous. <laughs> oh, fine. Hey, Harris, don't forget Sunday. I'll be there. So long, Jackson. Did you hear that, Mary? He called me Jackson. No one ever called me that before. All, All right, right folks. Go. Here's come a brand-new number I wrote myself called That's What I Like About This House. <laughs> Come with me to Alabama. Let's go see my dear old mammy. She's frying eggs and crawling hammy. That's what I like about this And that, and that, Mr. Kearns, is how I met Phil Harris. Well, that really is a story. And I must say, Mr. Kearns, that Phil has been very fortunate in being associated with a great star like myself. A man who's been on the radio for so many years and who every year almost wins the Academy. Oh, pardon me, Mr. Brother. Here comes
This is the Armed Forces Radio Service. Thank you for listening. Tomorrow night, it's Philip Marlowe, followed by Fibber McGee and Molly. Thanks to Joel Schoenwell for technical support. The executive producer of Theater of the Mind is Moses Neimer. I'm Frank Proctor. Have a great evening. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.